coming to you from the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. My guest today is David L. Eulen. He's a book critic for the Los Angeles Times and the author of many books himself, including, let's start from uh, The Myth of Solid Ground about earthquake predictions, The Lost Art of Reading about The Lost Art of Reading, a novella called Labyrinth. He is also the editor of books you will certainly have seen if you're into Los Angeles literature, Reading Los Angeles and Another City. He also did one of those 33 and a third books on uh, The Clash's London Calling, I believe, uh, which I haven't read yet myself, but I, I found out I found out about it earlier today, and now I want to pick it up. Tell me, before we talk about this new book, London Calling, why is it important to you? We're in Los Angeles. Let's talk London for one second. Uh, no, we will talk London Calling. Actually, it's interesting. You know, that was a book that I ended up never... I wrote part of it and then never ended up finishing. Wait, so I can't get it? You can't get it. Although, oh interestingly God. enough, it is um, in the in the tradition of, of, of many ghost books. Um, it is reviewed, I believe, on Goodreads. Really? Um, yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, uh, so I always find those kind of things. There's a great story about Jim Crace. Um the British novelist who, because of a computer error, a book of his that never existed was offered for sale on Amazon, um, Amazon UK. And Crace himself decided as a kind of prank to see how high he could get the Amazon numbers since he knew he would never have to pay for the books he was ordering because there was no such book. He did. It, he eventually got it up to number 84. So oh I kind God. of love the idea of these, of, these, of these ghost books. What I will say about London Calling is that it's the... Um, it was the record, well, that was the band, but it was the record that really um, kind of blew my head off musically when I was um, 18, 19 years old. I was coming from much more of a sort of hippie jam band tradition, which I still um, adhere to in some way. And I sort of got punk as a concept, but I didn't get it as a visceral force. And The Clash in, and, and London Calling in particular really changed that and allowed me to kind of see punk as part of a continuum rather than a less a break um, although somewhat but as part of a continuum because if you listen to that record everything is in there I mean they're going back and you know referencing Stagger Lee and they're you know they've, they've got um, they're playing all kinds of American um, styles of R&B covering old Mose Allison songs and as well as sort of um, what we would consider to be more straight ahead punk music so it opened up my uh, my sense of it and I'd never heard anything like it I kind of admired both its ambition which I still do its sense of kind of taking ownership of something and also it's kind of it's looseness there's a real sense of play to that record it took away the sense of punk exceptionalism in a way yes I think that's um, that's right I mean it wasn't they weren't Johnny Rotten saying you know uh, this is year one and I mean I always have been I've also I always have been kind of ambivalent partly drawn to sort of the extremism of year one revolutionaries and also aware of the fact that you know there is no such thing as year one and anytime some we better be war be careful about the people who are declaring it's year one because they are uh, you know I believe that's uh, Joseph Stalin was a year one thinker <laughs> yeah, you want to distance yourself from him but listeners, David's new book is not, it's not this book on, this ghost book, which may or may not ever see the light of day. It'll never, I don't think at this okay. point, you know, there's still a sort of uh, little fantasy, but I kind of like the idea of it existing as a ghost book. I, I like it too, but I was looking forward to ordering it after this, so now I'm a little bit disappointed. But I'm not disappointed in his new book, which is Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles. It is about this city that we sit in right now. It is, originally it was called, it was named for the district we're sitting in right now, yes, Miracle Mile? Yeah, the original working title was Miracle Mile. Um, and when we, when I was finished, we, above um, my editor and I had a long conversation about whether that worked as a title, whether it was something that would translate outside of Los Angeles in, in a certain way. Um, I mean, a lot of the book revolves around this neighborhood or sort of Mid Wilshire, Mid City, Miracle Mile, this kind of collection of neighborhoods. Um, and ultimately, we just sort of decided, we had had a long conversation where we sort of started investigating other possibilities without ruling that title out. And in, somewhere in there, we came up with um, sidewalking, and we kind of fell in love with that. So would you say Los Angeles, like like punk music, there's kind of a myth around or an idea that this was going to be a new type of city that destroyed the old models, this, this was a sort of year one city. <laughs> I mean, would you say that that kind of exceptionalism is something you've also shed by, by exposure to the city over 25-odd years? You know, it's interesting. I would say there's certainly a, an air of Los Angeles exceptionalism or a kind of sense of Los Angeles exceptionalism, exactly as you say. This was going to be a new kind of city going back to the beginning. Um, 
Um, you know, it was a city, <clears throat> as an American city, I think there are all these different things, distinctions that are worth thinking about. I mean, if we're really talking about Los Angeles as an American city, which is essentially a creation of the late 19th, early 20th century, um, it was a different kind of American city because it was going to be, you know, the, the come on was to middle class Anglos from other parts of the country, right? The, once, the, once the railroads were completed, the first real estate boom in the 1880s, part of the draw in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, as it's interesting how nothing ever changes, right? How, as, how the big cities, particularly of the East Coast, were basically welcoming in uh, immigrants from Europe, Eastern European immigrants, Irish immigrants, Italian, etc. Um, there was a nativist strand among those cities who felt, you know, that they were being overrun. And part of how Los Angeles was built or developed was by um, saying to these sort of middle class Anglos, "Come here, we'll we'll build a city that doesn't have any of these issues." Of course, that's not. Um, that was that's not possible, and it completely belied the fact that they had built this city on top of um, what had once been part of Mexico and was essentially occupied territory. You're never in year one. You're never in year one. Uh, but that idea of building a year one city, I think, is is one of the things that one of the central kind of conflicts or questions about Los Angeles. We see it now in terms of not just in Los Angeles, but in the Southwest in the United States. But we see it in terms of the you know all of this sort of ridiculous uproar about immigration, um, which just never kind of goes away. We're all immigrants. Right. I mean, there's a great line um, by Gary Snyder says, if you're talking about place in the way that, you know, people like to talk about place, deep roots, generational, it's like there is no nobody has a sense of place in California. You know, I mean, it's just not possible, uh, except for, um, you know, the Native Americans who were were here thousands of years ago um, or the Mexican-Americans are here when it was when it was Mexico. So we're all immigrants in our way. And I think that that tension is really interesting. This doesn't really answer your question, but it, it, it is a kind of an interesting set of tensions, and it does belie that year one, that exceptionalism. I mean, Los Angeles, like every place, is specific and has its own specific set of, of questions and problems and, and charms and history, and it's also generic in a way that, you know, all, I think all uh, American cities, let's say, probably all cities, but all American cities, um, face a certain kind of shared set of challenges and developed in a certain way. We talk about um, sprawl in Los Angeles, which is certainly part of its culture and its history, but it's not certainly not by any means the only American city that sprawled or suburbanized uh, with the advent of, of highways and freeways in the years after World War II. The line I was going to quote was one from a piece you anthologized in reading Los Angeles, one of my favorite pieces of writing about Los Angeles, I think one of yours as well, which is James M. Cain's Paradise from 1933. He said, trust an immigrant who got here in 1930 to haze an immigrant who got here in 1931. I mean, the same phenomenon applies here, it seems like, but that essay, I feel like it's it starts, for me at least, a tradition of writing about Los Angeles. Uh, the, the tone of it or the, the scope of it, even though it's just an essay, it does feel very large in scope, covering a place that's very large in scope even then. But writing a book like Sidewalking, were you thinking at all of being in any kind of tradition of Los Angeles descriptive writing? Yeah, I mean... Yes and no. I was not. I never would think consciously of being in a tradition um, because I think that would be overwhelming in some way. Um, I'm definitely aware, particularly in terms of writing about Los Angeles, of being part of an ongoing conversation. Um, I think that one of the reasons that I end up writing about or using um, a lot of, of writerly sources in the book, quote from a lot of writings, is I want those voices in the book. I want to have the book feel like a conversation that I'm having with those voices and hopefully have it be open so it's a conversation that the reader is having with those voices and we're all having a conversation about the city together. I think part of that has to do with, you know, the fact that, you know, Los Angeles does have a history, obviously, and it does have a, a set of traditions or a way of thinking or a kind of conversation that exists about the city. Um, that's always been a kind of cornerstone, or not always, but it's certainly been a cornerstone of a lot of the work I've done in terms of, of writing and editing about the city over um, the last couple of decades. And uh, I'm very aware of wanting to be part of that conversation. So I don't know. I mean, I do position myself, I would say, in some ways, if there was a tradition that I was positioning myself in, it would probably be a, a tradition that maybe begins with Kane or maybe Adam Louis Adamich around the same time, slightly before Kane. Uh, Carrie McWilliams, Mike Davis, Norman Klein, the kind of um, the kind of contrarians, the love haters in a way, um, and I think that it's because it is a complicated place, and it 
answers complicated um, uh, reactions. Um, what I also makes those writers different, Didion fits into that category too, I think, is that they are um, either natives or long-term residents. They're here for the long haul. I mean, one of the other things about that essay, Paradise, which is an essay I adore, is that Kane says, yeah, there are a lot of problems, but I'm here, you know, I'm not going to leave before the show is over. It's got all this, you know, there's also all this promise. I mean, he uses Paradise, you know, both as a kind of tongue-in-cheek thing, but also in a way, authentically. Um, and he is writing about it from the inside. One of my favorite parts of that essay is the that long opening riff where he basically imagines Southern California as a watercolor map, and he talks about it's not green, you know, he sort of, it's not green, it's kind of dusty, and he sort of, you know, undercuts a lot of the physical myths of the place in two or three pages while extending this metaphor, while actually describing the landscape pretty accurately as to what it is. I think Kane was trying to write about what was actually there. Um, doesn't always succeed, but I think that was his intention, and um, in that way, I think he kind of sets up that conversation or that other tension. Are we going to talk about the real place or are we going to talk about the myths? And what does it mean that they're both kind of interwoven at this point so it's impossible to talk about one without talking about the other? Now, I've read a lot of Los Angeles books, not as many as you have, admittedly, but I've read as many as I can. And yours is the first book that I've, I've, I've read that captures this current phase of Los Angeles. This is not what I would call it, but people are going to say your book captures Los Angeles becoming a real city again i wouldn't call i wouldn't say that myself but you know your laughter tells me that you you realize this will be said as well do, do, do the, does the term real city have any meaning to you no i actually um you know one of the people i talked to in in the course of i mean the book sort of developed over a long period of time but one of the people who i talked to is a, a guy who was a professor at usc who's now um in nevada but a guy named greg heist who's a really smart urban... Magnetic Los Angeles guy. Yes, a really smart urban theorist. And um, at one point when I was talking to him, I, we, were, we were talking about... I, I said something about organic cities, and he said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, and we're like, and he said, there is no such thing as an organic city. Cities do not grow out of the earth. They are not by their nature. They All cities are artificial. Um, so in that sense, there is no such thing as a real city, or all cities are real in their fakeness in a certain way. Um, so, But I do see the point. I mean, for me, it's... Um it's a way. It's an interesting moment because I think two, a few things are happening. One is it's um, you, you could say, and I think that you know, I think you could actually say fairly accurately, it is L.A. becoming in its own particular Los Angeles way a kind of more traditional city, in the sense that we think of traditional cities. And again, that's a trope that we invent. But um, you know, it's becoming more like an eastern city. It's becoming more verticalized. It's becoming more. It's becoming denser. It's becoming. Um, more self-conscious about its cityness in a certain sense. It's developing a collective identity, which uh, you know it probably always had in some way. But it feels more. It feels like there's a more pronounced sense of, let's say, pride of place or kind of Los Angeles identity that feels like it's not just. Um, you know, Culver City or Santa Monica or Echo Park or, um, or, or, or Studio City or Angelino Heights, but that there's something that they kind of share, like a sense that we're in it together. Um, I think that that is partly has to do with uh, the redevelopment of downtown and the idea that there's actually some kind of center to the uncentered city. I think, you know, I'd like to think it has to do with light rail and public transportation, although I think the jury's still out on that, but ridership numbers are up. I'm very eager to see what happens uh, once the Expo line opens to Santa Monica and then once the Purple line extends out. So it begins to access more neighborhoods. Um, I think there's also a sense that it's a real, I mean, we have all known it's a real place, but it's a real place in the sense that often and it's difficult and unnavigable, and we're kind of in it together that way too. And I think that this, you know, the sense of things that you know I've been arguing for years that it's a vibrant, um, exciting intellectual landscape, social landscape, artistic landscape, all of these kind of things. All that stuff is exploding in various ways now. So we're aware of it as a as a city in some sense. I also think though that in a lot of ways, uh, it's it's. Um, I think I use the phrase in the book, "Back to the Future." It's. Um, it's not so much a new Los Angeles, although it is, or let's call it an ev evolving Los Angeles. I do think of it as an evolutionary process, but it's also a kind of return in some way to a pre 
World War II Los Angeles. Um, you know, the idea of streetcars, we had this fabulous streetcar system until it was it was just torn out. So the idea of streetcars and light rail and that kind of public transportation, the idea of a city that is somehow centered around um, downtown in some way, where with a vibrant downtown, the idea um, of a city of neighborhoods, which Los Angeles has always been. Um, I mean, in many ways, I think the freeways are another neighborhood in their own way. But... Um, all of those things were part of the fabric of the city before the kind of suburbanization and the real sort of institutionalization of the sprawl. Um, it feels to me that that sprawl Los Angeles, the freeway, suburban house, um, never get out of your car, streets are not framed as public space Los Angeles, that worked pretty well for about half a century. It doesn't work anymore in the same way. There's just too many people here, um, too much terminal gridlock, and too much desire, I think, to commingle, right, to get out on the street um, and to sort of engage. And so I think that quality of engagement, maybe that's what I'm talking about rather than pride of place. There feels like a real sense of engagement with the city, which, like direct engagement with the city, which I think is both new in terms of the Los Angeles, a post-war Los Angeles, um, but also a throwback in many ways to sort of the Los Angeles of a hundred years ago. Right. I mean, I, I started living here in 2011, not that long ago. But I mean, I go I go to a lot of different cities and write about them, and Los Angeles has never, to me, felt like a different species than the other cities that I go to. Not not hugely, but. Then I, when I'm here, I, the way that people who've been here longer than me talk about it, like they say things that seem either like myths or old ideas about the city or just lies, as if they were descriptions of the city. Like they'll say, "Oh, you know, this is an unplanned city, or you can't breathe here, you need a car." I mean, I haven't got one yet myself, and I, does, I don't feel the pressing need for that, or to do any. I don't feel the pressing need to do any of the things you're supposed to, you were supposed to do in Los Angeles 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I wonder, like, is there a sense? I get the sense a lot that people often get stuck psychologically in the Los Angeles they arrived in. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with people who, you know, this is this is just generalizing out of many different ones, but you know, let's say a guy got here in 1978, and he's telling me his argument why downtown will never become an urban center, and I feel like, man, it happened a few years ago, like, it's it, it's done, it, it's, it, it's already done, like, it, but they don't see it, they, it's a mythical trope, and I hate to bring it out, but the idea of the Native Americans not seeing Columbus's ships, because they didn't know what a ship was, I feel like a lot of Angelinos don't see what happened around them, maybe, I don't know why, Does, do you get that sense, though? Um, I think that's true, I think it's probably true of a lot of things, I mean, I also think in some ways we look for or see the city that we want or the city that but we look complain for. about it like do they want that but we want i mean i think you know you well you're talking to someone who grew up in new york so actually complaining <laughs> about the place you live is part you know that's what you need to do right if you don't do it then it's a problem if you exactly i mean that's part of that dynamic right or part of that vibrancy but i mean i think you know for me um in some ways, part of my excitement about the current state of Los Angeles or the changes or the developmental process that Los Angeles is going through is that it's growing into the kind of city I always wanted it to be. I hate driving, um, you know, spend days at a time without getting in a car, although I have a car, um, and use it, certainly. Um, you know, I love public transportation. I am delighted that they are, you know, that the city is about to, not about to, but in the next several years we'll put a subway station in my neighborhood where I can walk to the subway and, you know, possibly never have to get in a car again. Um, and I like the idea of, a down, of an urban core. I like the idea of a vibrant downtown. It speaks to me. Now, that may be because I grew up in Manhattan and that's a kind of urban model I'm used to. Um, but it's an exciting urban model, and I don't think that it is antithetical to Los Angeles. I think, you know, one of the great things about any major city, any huge city, but this one in particular, and partly one that has such geographic spread, is that you can have all of it in some way. If you want to live the kind of classic um, Southern California, you know, live by the water, live by the beach, you can do that. You want to live in a in a you know high rise apartment downtown, you can do that. Um, you want to live in a you know 1920s bungalow in in a residential, you can do all of those things. Um, and I think that that is the promise of the place in some way but yes i think it's possible we people get stuck well people get stuck in whatever their transformative moment is you know i mean right. it doesn't only have to do with geography it can also be aesthetics or you know whatever all sorts of things there's a jerry seinfeld line that uh, every man dresses in the styles of the last good year of their lives this might be the same phenomenon <laughs> well that's scary because i dress like I, I i've dressed the same way since i was 12 so i don't know what that you had a good age 12 year <laughs> good adolescence um but you mentioned soon you're going to have a subway station in your neighborhood which is a good thing uh it seems like to me it's it's 
unequivocally a good thing, but you have this story in Sidewalking about how you went to a neighborhood meeting. I, I don't know if you mentioned the era, but uh, you, were, you were talking about how cool it would be at the meeting to have a subway station there. And someone there says, you, you're not saying you want a subway station in the neighborhood, right? What was going on in that person's head? Because I, I, I can say right now I have no idea what they were thinking when they just were almost rhetorically being like, well, obviously this guy can't want that. Right. Well, actually, and the response I said was, I want a subway station on my corner. Right. Um, and doesn't everyone is right. my idea. <laughs> but, I, no, this was in 1991 or two. I had just moved here. It was the only neighborhood um, planning meeting I ever went to. Um, I'm not even sure why I went, but I did. I, I knew it was about the subway. I was excited about the subway coming in. Um, they were talking specifically about the red line, which at that point was about, you know, within a year of the first leg of it opening up, the first five stops from Union Station to, I guess, MacArthur Park. Um, and there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of NIMBY resistance. There was a lot of NIMBY resistance at that time in the early 90s to discussion. I mean, the discussions of, of putting a light rail on, um, on the Exposition Boulevard right away was already happening then because that right of way was, it was perfect. It was there. Um, you know, it had to be cleaned up and, but it, you know, I mean, it was already laid out and there was an enormous, particularly, uh, the further west you got, it was a, uh, there was a lot of resistance to the idea of running, um, running trains through, um, through neighborhoods. And I think it was just coming out of that. I think it was a sense, I also think there was a sense on a lot of people's part that they did not want Los Angeles to be like New York. Um, In what sense? In terms of, um, well, I don't know. I don't want to speak for them. My cynical and judgmental response was always that it was all code for crime um, and that there was a way that if, if you know, somehow public transportation would allow the other to bridge the, you know, the borders of neighborhoods, and that was a dangerous thing. Well, the buses went there already, presumably. Well, and, you know, so do, so do streets and freeways. It's not, you know, it's not like it's that difficult to get around the city or to get into whatever neighborhood anyone wants to get into anyway. As we know in Los Angeles, no criminal can drive a car. Right, exactly. But I feel like there was... It was I mean, I feel like in some ways I've, I've always felt that a lot of kind of community resistant to infrastructure projects has been um, is coded in that way. Um, I think that that does speak to, in some sense, Los Angeles uh, among its its sort of um, bleaker aspects is it has a long institutionalized history of, of segregation, um, housing covenants, um, neighborhood dividing lines, etc., and of suspicion of the other. And I also think that in many ways, how do I want to say this? I think that, you know, the kind of private house model, right, which, I mean, Adamich deri- discusses but derides in a certain way. He calls um, Los Angeles the enormous village, which is reminiscent of Richard Meltzer's line that it's the biggest hick town in all the hick land, one of the great, great lines ever written about L.A. Um, but he talks about it as a kind of, you know, it is a, a, an enormous small town in the sense that it's, it's, you know, its social life is built on a single-family house model. Um, it's very domestic in nature. That can be great in many ways, but it can also be difficult because it does resist the idea of the commons or the or public space. Um, I think that was only exacerbated as, you know, in terms of what we were just talking about at, in the, 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 the post-war freeway era where you could easily <clears throat> go from home to work to wherever you wanted to go and back to home without actually being in public space, um, you know, or being unadulteratedly in public space, right, um, without some kind of buffer around you. And so I think there's a lot of, um, how would I, I think there's, there has been a lot of suspicion in, in that sense. And so change, um, particularly change that sort of in some way draws the city together can be something to resist. Hap- I mean, happily or otherwise, that is changing. I mean, we saw that even with the um, idea of putting the subway, um, the red line, or I guess the purple line in Beverly Hills. There was an enormous amount of resistance claiming to deal with um, geologic concerns, but it was really, I think, about other concerns. So um, so I think these are part of the challenges, and I think that that is sort of a legacy of a kind of suburbanized culture, which this city has institutionalized as part of its urban culture. It's one of those, it's my standard, not a, not a rant, but a standard point I make, that people blame the cars for everything in Los Angeles. Oh, the car culture, oh, this driving, and the, how far you have to drive, and the commutes, and the freeways. I feel like it is a bit misplaced in terms of the actual source of the problem. Like, 
sure there are cars, but only because people feel an obligation to have them because of the house culture. I wouldn't say there's a car culture here. Look at the roads there. I mean, th these are all bland vehicles, and people the, the people driving them just feel obligated to. No one's excited about their car. But the house culture has made this happen, right? I, I mean, I think there's that. I think the spread of it, too. I mean, I think it's... it's um, and I think also the fact that, you know, literally, once the red cars or you know once the the streetcar well the red cars and were, were pulled out or in the you know it's impossible to get around this landscape by bus so public transportation as an option becomes really an option for people who can't who are either too young to drive or can't afford to drive and then it becomes a class issue and um and that so that i think is a i mean it certainly has become and hopefully is becoming less so with with light rail and subway but it has become a class issue then then all these other things come into play but initially i think it had to do with um mobility right once you have to take a bus for an hour and a half to get from santa monica to downtown or um from pasadena to downtown or wherever then you know it's not worth it i mean even now living sort of in this neighborhood i would take public transportation when i was working downtown as much as i could but if i didn't catch the buses right to get to the subway it could take me two or three times as long to get downtown as it would if i was driving so that's a problem right you know public transportation has to be efficient above all else it's true and you mentioned the stretch from santa monica to downtown and i think of a line you quote in Sidewalking from a piece of writing I admire uh, about Los Angeles but don't quite understand from Carolyn C.'s Golden Days where it's this image people it's a vivid image and people refer to it every now and again in, in various texts about uh, downtown being the, the thick coiled route and the stem of the 10 freeway extending west and um, this is obviously not verbatim, but it branches out of that stem, growing into communities you might want to live if if it goes right, you if know, it for goes you. Right. If yes. Or, right. Yeah. But to me, I mean, I like the vividness of the image, but I, I guess I the, the downtown is the route I get. But why choose one particular freeway and that one to be the the lifeline uh, the, that that is what Los Angeles is reduced to. Because, of course, she starts saying, they say Los Angeles is big, but they lie. It's just right. this. But I have, I can't think of a reason why that's what Los Angeles would just be. I mean, you can live along the 10 or literally anywhere else, to my mind. No, I agree. I mean, I think what she's saying, I actually wrote about this passage. That passage has always been quite resonant to me because, uh, you know, as I said in the book, it... Um it gave me a Manhattanized model. When I first moved here, I read that book fairly early, I think in the first five or six months I was living here. And it gave me a Manhattanized model, which was the urban model I understood, and a way to begin to frame the city or take what felt to me like a very chaotic urban landscape and give it some kind of order, even if it was a false order or an imposed order. And I think in some ways it was, and I think in some ways it wasn't. And I think in that sense, I mean, you could make that argument that there is a kind of central corridor of Los Angeles, or let's call it a Manhattan of Los Angeles, although I, I, as I give that image, I disavow that image, but, um, <clears throat> you know, that you could say downtown, the 10 to Santa Monica is about 10 miles long, um, you know, downtown is sort of the, the financial district, the battery, um, you know, the residential districts, and then the end, the end of it. So there's a way that it, it, it creates a narrative. I think it creates a narrative. I think it is a striking image. I think it's certainly not even close to being all of Los Angeles. Um, I also think in some ways she's writing about how people think of Los Angeles. And so in some ways I think that that's an attractive lens, particularly for a readership that um, may either just live in those communities or may not live in Los Angeles at all and is looking at a way um, at a way to frame it. So like most of those images or metaphors, I think it's a useful one, but I don't think it's a complete one. So could she have well have written the 101 or in, uh, the 110 or indeed Wilshire Boulevard and it had been the same effect for you? Like just it had to narrow it down to one line. It had to narrow it down for one line. I mean, in some ways that was a line I recognized because I was sort of living in, in the middle and I would right. spend time there. I had not yet begun to explore, say, the Valley or the South Bay. I'd certainly not begun to see anything that was east of downtown um, San Gabriel Valley or any of that stuff that was all pretty alien and I was looking for a kind of um, a frame that I could understand and that actually also I was physically familiar with that I was in as my I became more 
familiar with the rest of the city, that seems like less of a defining metaphor for me. Um, but I think it's the search to define the city that is the most interesting. I also think that because Carolyn lives in Topanga Canyon and, you know, sort of that is, in, in a way, she's tracing her own, um, her own, uh, you know, her own stem, right? Her own stem to the city. And I think that that's the other thing that that sort of offered me was that it is personal, right? That the city, like all cities, is defined by our engagement with the city, our interaction with the city. So my experience of the city is my experience. Her experience is hers. Yours is yours. The landmark places that we identify are landmarks to us for various Reasons, uh, whether they be, you know, just familiarity—that's where we happen to be—or some kind of personal affinity, or something um, along those lines. So that idea of kind of creating a narrative of the city that spoke to your own experience of it was really, really important and useful to me. Right, and I mean, I'll admit, you say she lives in Topanga. I, I've never entered, I've never set foot in any neighborhood ending in Canyon here yet, and I probably never will. I'll admit that. So, like, there's a sense in which they don't overlap, but a sense in which also part of me is like, why do I have to consider all that this city as well? Like, do I do I really have to? Do you feel an obligation to consider Los Angeles sort of the greatest, the the widest spanning definition of Los Angeles? Do you feel an obligation to include everything? I, I go back and forth. I mean, I certainly, you know, I certainly consider anything that is city of L.A. So, in the most mundane sense, any street corner I'm on that has a blue street sign, <laughs> not a not, not like a light blue, but that you know that L.A. blue street sign. That's L.A., right? Um, just by political entity, if nothing else. I kind of love the idea of Topanga being part of the city in the same way that downtown is part of the city, in the same way that Boyle Heights is part of the city, in the same way that San Pedro is part of the city, that all of these things kind of add up to this bigger um, to this bigger whole. I define it all sorts of ways and at many different times. I mean, it's, um, you know, there's city of L.A., there's county of L.A., there's all the unincorporated stuff. There's, you know, the, what do we want to call it, the Southern California megalopolis, right? You could, you could make the case, as Mike Davis does, and I think quite well, that it's uh, Santa Barbara to Tijuana, um, Pacific Ocean to the Inland Empire, right? That in yes, terms of the kind right. of... The sort of the footprint of Los Angeles, Los Angeles as metaphor, psychological footprint, that it could be that. And I think that's a, a valid argument to make and certainly an argument that I've made. You could also say that Los Angeles is, um, you know, is whatever it is, right? It could, you know, whatever you want it to be. Um, I think that's actually, for me, one of the great challenges and satisfactions of thinking about it and writing it is that it, it defies those definitions or it's all of them at the same time. And I have to figure out a way to balance those distinct and sometimes opposing visions of it in my imagination um, because it can be all of those things. Right, and you mentioned Mike Davis's vast definition of Los Angeles, and this is something I see pop up a lot in the history of Los Angeles writing, 60s, 70s, 80s. On the earlier end of that spectrum, there's a, a book I like a lot, one of the more forgotten Los Angeles descriptive books, uh, The Ultimate City by Christopher Rand, and he does a similar thing where he, he says, yeah, you might as well sort of, he talks about the various geographical, geographical entities that could be Los Angeles. And he says, you know, you could just consider everything south of Santa Barbara and north of San Diego, Los Angeles. And it's like, why though? Why is that, why is that a cool? Why is that impressive? Why do you, why would you want to do that? Why would you, what is the advantage of considering an unfathomable slice of land to be Los Angeles? Oh, no, I agree. And I think actually, um, I mean, I, don't spend a vast amount of time in San Diego, but enough. I have some good friends who live there, and it's not Los Angeles. I mean, it's similar to Los Angeles in the sense that it's another big Southern California city, but it's definitely not Los Angeles any more than Santa Barbara is Los Angeles, any more than Riverside is Los Angeles, or San Bernardino is Los Angeles, or frankly, Pasadena in a lot of ways. I mean, Pasadena is interesting because it really, I mean, it's, you know, it's part of greater Los Angeles, but it really is a city with its own identity that is very distinct in many ways from from Los Angeles. Uh, but I think in some ways it's, e again, I think it's all about looking for definition. And so for me, at least, the longer I've lived here and the longer I've thought about the place and the more I've traveled through or spent time in various corners of it and, um, and thought about how it fits together, the more I think about it as this kind of collection of distinct communities or distinct neighborhoods, you know, yes, that adds up to a larger whole, but there is, um, there are those distinctions. And I want to sort of see those neighborhoods, those communities for what they are. Um, I think there is, I mean, if we buy the sprawl model as the only model, then, you know, what is sprawl, what, you know, what's the best sprawl, the biggest sprawl, right? So in that sense, um, 
it's the you know the best metaphor for sprawl is the is the biggest, but it fails. I mean, I think even Davis in the prologue of City of Courts, when he writes about those um, housing developments out in the Antelope Valley that are being platted before they've even been built, he posits that the city will just continue to expand. So that was 25 years ago. At you know at that time which is about a year before I moved here, or so let's even say in the early 90s as I was living here and getting to know it, I would have, I not only would have, I did, I absolutely thought that was, he was dead on correct. There was, that was exactly what was going to happen. I also thought that Blade Runner was going to be the future. Um, but neither of those things happened. I'm sort of still waiting on Blade Runner. I it's hope it's, it's going to be. It's four years away. I mean, you I, might get there. Where's the, where are the geishas on the side of that tower? <laughs> but um, we, need, we need replicants, though. There are no replicants. <laughs> but anyway... We don't know that. We don't sure. know that. That's true. That's true. Maybe they are human replicants. But in any event, um, we know from sort of the history of the San Gabriel Valley, and we know from, or sorry, the history of the Antelope Valley, we know that, you know, from the foreclosures, and we know from the difficulty of that commute, and, you know, all those things, that it didn't work, that Los Angeles, you know, one of those myths that is completely exploded was the myth of endless expansion. You know, Los Angeles hit its limits, whatever those limits were, whether they were actual physical limits, like the mountains and the ocean, or just distance limits. And then it kind of, I don't want to say it contracted, but it sort of has folded back in on itself in a certain sense. It's, it, you know, and in that sense, too, I think that may be something psychological or psychologically um, relevant about the change in the way we think about the city. It no longer feels for a, a whole host of reasons to be the city of limitless possibility. Um, and I think that's actually a good thing. Now, talking a little bit more, your colleague at, at the Times, Christopher Hawthorne, who writes about architecture, he did this series, Reading Los Angeles, a few years ago, uh, just, I think, before I came here, where he wrote about books like City of Courts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he, Bannum. He wrote a great piece about uh, Bannum, yeah. about Los Angeles here. Apologies. Him as well. He's folded into this question, too. Ben, why not? Uh, so, he, yeah. Christopher Hawthorne wrote that the City of Courts, you know, we remember certain parts of it. We remember it selectively, and parts of it have not aged well. Right. Um, and I reread the book recently. I can tell you I was turning a lot of pages without fully reading them toward the end. But there are some very relevant sections that are still ex- extremely relevant. Rainer Banham is a better writer than Mike Davis. So I'm just, that's my opinion. Um, on a sentence level. So I read, whenever I read that book, Four Ecologies, I read the whole thing. I don't skip anything, but I still notice the same phenomenon where the relevant parts are more relevant than ever and the irrelevant parts are completely irrelevant. The same goes with Paradise, uh, the James M. Cain essay. Uh, what's, what's going on? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's a few things. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think just as, you know, I think uh, City of Courts, parts of it really, really hold up. The parts that don't hold up really, really don't hold up. Um, I think the same is true of Four Ecologies. I mean, I, I, I sort of revere both of those books in many ways. City of Courts was the, you know, the book. There were a number of books I read right before I moved here to kind of give me a sense of what was going on. City of Courts was far and away the most important and most influential to, to uh, and remains that way. What, what did it tell you? From the point of view of someone who hadn't been living in Los Angeles at that point um, it's sort of I mean I've always been drawn to uh, uh, Davis's apocalyptic sensibility um, I like apocalypse I like apocalyptics I, I think you know but the idea that Los Angeles was somehow not this fluff factory but was in fact you know dark and dystopian and you know built on inequities and um, you know that that it was going to collapse under the weight of its own contradictions that coming from coming from Manhattan that really appealed to me in the sense that I was um, I was aware of that always in New York and I was very resistant to kind of the myth of Los Angeles the sense that it was the city that worked it was a city that didn't have that kind of those kind of historical um, contradictions or those historical that historical baggage so I really liked that um, that aspect of it and it and I think he was right in many ways I mean I do think that that book you know I don't obviously not intentionally it wasn't a, it wasn't it wasn't witchcraft but I think that book did predict in many ways what happened not the riots per se the Rodney King riots per se, but what happened after um, after the the verdict, and then what happened all throughout the '90s in terms of Los Angeles, partly because Davis had a strong sense of what the economy of the city was, and he wasn't reading tea leaves; he was 
seeing what was happening in its moment and kind of making a projection of what he how he thought things were going to develop. You know, I mean, Bannum, I think also in the sense of kind of actually being the first person who looks at Los Angeles in 1971, he writes, he publishes that book, but who looks at the city from its from on its terms as opposed to his terms. He comes in and kind of takes it on faith for what it is. I think, you know, the stuff that's Far, far and away, the most dated stuff in the Banner book is all the stuff about driving and the, you know, the freedom that the car offers, which we now know is not true. But I do think in 1971, the promise of it was absolutely there, particularly for an architectural historian from England who had come in. And I think the other thing that's interesting about it is that he defines, you know, there's that great passage where he talks about, I think I mentioned this the other night, where he talks about, you know, as you you know, he starts watching the way people behave when they're coming off the freeway and re-entering the city and they pull down the mirror and they start, they fix their hair or they do whatever. And, you know, the sense of the social landscape or even thinking about the freeway as a social landscape, he's absolutely right. But that's a kind of a revolutionary idea to take something that we don't tend to think about critically at all and think about it critically. That's one aspect of it. But to take something that is so maligned and so sort of derided as and stereotyped, right, and, you know, is, is, is fascinating. And to look at it as a kind of piece of the social fabric is just a, an act of, of genius. So I think the question, you know, the question as to why those books some you know are still remain prescient in some ways and and also date in some ways just has to do with the kind of dynamic nature of 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 the city or of anything really i mean you know we have this sense that books somehow should exist out of time or be timeless but in fact that's not possible they have to exist in time i'm always reminded of the argument david foster wallace had with his writing teacher he wrote that he called him the great gray eminence <laughs> yes. uh, you know the story so you know the guy the teacher was it would say you know you shouldn't put in product you don't put coca-cola in your stories don't put things that will date the stories um contemporary references which will date the stories and wallace being the smart ass that he was said you know but you know your stories like people talk on the phone or they use electricity <laughs> so yeah. Is that not the same the thing? Continents have taken their current form. <laughs> exactly. You know? So all of that stuff is true, and I think it's really the case. I mean, I think that um, you know we write out of our moment. We write in many ways about our moment, even if we're extrapolating um, into the future. Even if we're writing science fiction, for instance. I mean, you know, we were just talking about Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Um, the closer we get to 2019, which was the year that Blade Runner takes place, the more Blade Runner looks like a movie about 1982, which was the year that it was right. made, right. Um, which is as it should be, right? It yes. grew out of that moment. And, you know, so I think in that sense, like all kind of prognosticators or projectors or whatever, um, you only have the information you have at your disposal. And uh, you're going to extrapolate from that no matter where it goes. You're going to extrapolate from that no matter where it goes. And what appears to be, you know, but history is weird and things happen. Um, you know, there's a lot of randomness and chaos. And so, you know, even the most sort of thoughtful or intelligent prognostication you know, runs, a, you know, at least an equal chance of not coming true. I would say that Bannum is maybe the most talked about describer of Los Angeles still. And I wonder, there's this part... You mentioned his writing about the freeways. There's something he says there, and it's echoed throughout the book, that people don't really discuss this aspect of his perspective, but I think about it all the time myself, which is that he talks about the freeways and says, that, oh, this is the best motorway system I've ever encountered. And then he follows that up immediately with, but Angelinos being who they are, you know, they can and probably will just scrap this and build something new, closer to the perfection they're always seeking. Right. And he had a sense like, oh, you think the architecture's bad? They're going to just tear it down and put something new up. They're going to just iterate. The city is like a metabolism. He didn't use the word metabolism, but that's how he seemed to see it. And I feel like not only have commentators on Los Angeles forgot about that about him, Los Angeles has forgot it to some extent that they, there's this sense of that we're not stuck with anything, really. We can... We can build something better. Uh, and in the sense of, I mean, there, there's, as you say, there's more transit being built sort of as another layer on top of the city. But there's, I, I think of the preservation movement, which has done a lot of good things, but they seem to, they, they pick strange hills to die on. Uh, you know, like, I feel like there's some coffee, some mid-century coffee shops are not necessarily better than anything humanity could build in the future, you know? I don't disagree. I mean, I, but I'm also not a utopianist in the sense that, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with Bannum on that score only because I don't think, I mean, I think one of the things that happens probably in all cities is that things solidify, right? The city solidifies. And so, um, 
the limitless possibility of kind of 1950s, 1960s Los Angeles, let's say for argument's sake, which is probably a lot less unlimited than we think of it looking back, um, had to do with the fact that it wasn't fully built up. As it gets more fully built up, you things are already here. So you know, if you look at a you know an older city. Um, like you know, any like New York, Rome, Paris. I mean, you know, in 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 some of the really old, in cities like Rome, there are structures that are you know thousands of years old that are still being used or have been adapted in some way. Um, and what's really interesting to me is more how we adapt, how we adapt to the to the things rather than rebuild them. I kind of like the idea. I mean, I agree with you about the coffee shops, but I kind of like the idea that we are trying to kind of work with what we have rather than tear everything down and, and, and rebuild it. Although we do live in a landscape where nature will certainly tear many things down for us if we, whether we want it to or not. But I kind of like that. And I wonder if that's again, part of the evolution of a city. I mean, I think, you know, I also think in terms of kind of timeframes and lifespans and, you know, if we think about it again, Los Angeles as a kind of contemporary American city is a very young city. It is uh, very much, um, you know, it's, it's, maybe 125, 135 years, really, we're talking about it as a kind of um, American metropolis or American city, really a creation, I mean, you know, I mean, not a, a creation, but for all intents and purposes, a creation of the 20th century. And so, you know, I tend to think about it in comparison. When I think about it in comparison to other cities, I try and think about it in comparison to other cities at a similar point of evolution, right? A similar point in their in their developmental history. Um, you know, New York after 125 years. Um, I'm not even talking about from Peter Stuyvesant days, but um, let's say New York 125 years after independence. We're talking the turn of the last century. Um, it's a very, very different city in terms of both its makeup, a lot of the kind of um, the immigrant culture, the ethnic cultures that we now define New York by are just coming or just taking root and are not part of the mainstream of the city at all at that point. So in terms of how cities develop and evolve, they develop and evolve um, over time. And I think part of that has to do with kind of working with the stock as opposed to constantly replacing the stock. It's your... your you have a longer direct experience with Los Angeles than I do. So, I mean, tell me if I'm too off base in thinking, though, that there's, there, it does seem, Los Angeles seems a bit beset now by a sense that whatever new thing we build won't be as good as what was old. Not in the sense of that it won't be historical. There are the, there's that element too, but in the sense of it won't be as inspired. It's going to be blander. It's going to be not, it's going to be not the Los Angeles we thought Los Angeles was. Uh, not everybody thinks this way, and it's not, I don't think it's crippling the city, but I get the sense that if something gets torn down, especially something people recognized or that was mildly iconic, there's a sense that, uh, we're just not going to do better. We're just, it's not going to be, it's not going to be something distinctive. It's not going to be something special. It's not going to be, uh, anything we want. That's an interesting point. I haven't really thought about that in terms of Los Angeles, particularly. I mean, I think that's definitely the contemporary American malaise. Sure. Um, <laughs> Los Angeles's problems are often just America's, right? Yeah. No, I mean, as anywhere. And I definitely think that that is our, our sense. I mean, and I think you can see it. I mean, I always think about the sort of disruption of infrastructure, or not the disruption, but the decay of infrastructure, right? I mean, if you think about um, one of the great challenges of the freeway system at the moment is that so much of it is in such disrepair. And there seems to be no, certainly no money and no will to get the money um, to be able to to do anything about that. So I think there is a kind of malaise in that sense. I think, you know, we as a culture, um, perhaps rightly, perhaps wrongly think that our, uh, you know, are sort of wrestling with this fear, um, or belief that our best years are beyond us are behind us. Right. And there's the sense as well, like you mentioned the freeways getting into disrepair and there's examples from the U S a few, but around the world, a lot of cities you can point to freeways or sections of freeways that have been torn down and made into something more appealing than a freeway. Not hard to do, but it's right. been done in many places outside Los Angeles. Bring that up here, you know, see just idle conversation. You say, I wonder which is going to be the first freeway to go away. And it's like you, it's like you said something that is not fathomable enough to even speculate upon. And is this another case of Los Angeles exceptionalism? Like, this is going to be the first place that no freeway ever goes down. Eh, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, there are plenty of freeways that were planned and never built. I think, I, I mean, I think that in many ways the freeways, it, it, I don't have an answer to that question except to say that I think in many ways the freeways are so iconic on so many levels. 
Um, whether, you know, certainly as infrastructure projects, certainly as metaphor, certainly in terms of this kind of faith in mobility, whether or not that's a, an active faith or a viable faith at this point. Um, to me, they're like sculptures because I never use them. And no, some are cool. Right. No, they're very sculptural. I mean, you know, I mean, right? Bantam says the greatest work of man is the, is the, in, is the, he's completely wrong, but he says, <laughs> I think he said to be fair, one of the great one works of the great, yes. even that could be that's wrong. That's true, but it's not one of the great, whatever. But, you know, he talks about the sweep of the, you know, the, 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 the the 10405 interchange. interchange, yes, um, which would have, I mean, I don't know, maybe aesthetically, but we, you know, when you're sitting there trying to get on the road, it is definitely not among the greater works of man. But, um, but I do like that idea. I mean, I do, you know, again, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the city and the freeways illustrated is that it is a very utilitarian city in many ways and that a lot of its monuments are utilitarian. I mean, I, 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 um, you know, I, for a long time it really puzzled me that we, there are all those memorial, you know, the, this is the, whatever, the Clarence Wayne Dean, he's the motorcycle cop who died mm-hmm. um, in the Antelope Valley during the earthquake, you know, the Clarence Wayne Dean interchange, or, yeah, you know, yeah. I was like, this is so bizarre, you, na- you know, like, this is this is the monument that we build, we build a, free, you know, we name a free, like a stretch of freeway for somebody, but actually it makes an immense amount of sense because that is, we do, you know, we use, what better place to put a monument than a place where people are, you it's know, true. in it's some true. way, um, but I think there is this sense of the utilitarian, of like, infrastructure is beauty, you know, or the, the idea of kind of the creative requirement of infrastructure, the engineering creativity, the design creativity that goes into building that interchange that may, you know, may well make it one of the greater works of man. And I think for me at least, Bannum was the writer or the thinker, the observer who opened my mind up to that concept. I don't think I'd ever really thought about it in quite that way until I encountered Bannum. I mean, it makes sense what you say about the monumental or the, the memorial interchanges, you know, put them where people are, but I think of another infrastructural, I don't want to say feature, and I don't even want to say infrastructural of Los Angeles, but you know those signs. At just intersections of two roads, you'll see the blue signs that, that call it like Ira Yellen Square yes. or An Chang Ho Square. They call it a square. It's just, an, it's just a traffic light. It's just an intersection. And I just sit there and think... Los Angeles, this is why. This is why you get made fun of. You call it, <laughs> this isn't a square. Like, what? You've seen these things. I mean, yeah. what is your reaction to these? I, mean, I like, think they're largely ridiculous, but I mean, I think there's also that sense of, right, I mean, they're not, I mean, but you, I don't know, you can't really call it the Ira Yellen intersection. I guess you could. That would kind of be interesting. Or build something that's worth being a memorial. That's well, there's one that, thing. yeah. <laughs> Although, um, but I do think there's that sense of, I mean, there, you know, this is also a place with its ludicrous aspects, which right. are, uh, you know, are also part of its, uh, it took me a long time to realize this, but are part of its charm. Right. It, it, yeah. it can be. It's true. And you mentioned the, the utilitarian nature of Los Angeles. I was just yesterday taking some students on tour of the Bonaventure Hotel, a building that I, it's hard to say, I wouldn't say I love it, but I am extremely fascinated by it and go in it regularly. Uh, and I've written and made videos about it and whatnot, so I guess there's a kind of love there. But what I, if I love it, something about it, I love its lack of romanticism, its mm-hmm. unromanticism. And I don't necessarily go around saying I love Los Angeles, but I think I do love the lack of romanticism that I sense in Los Angeles. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense about that era of Los Angeles. I mean, I find a lot of romanticism in sort of older Los Angeles, by which I mean Los Angeles of the 20s and 30s and 40s and whatever the residue or the, the residue, the structures, whatever. Um, you know, I think about places like uh, like I'm uh, particularly... Um, I understand why, but I'm not thrilled about the reconstruction of the California incline because I love the California incline as an art, as an artifact. Now, the California incline, that structure was built in 1930. Um, it's been pounded on by cars for 85 years. It's not seismically fit, right? So I completely understand why it needs to be replaced, but I, I, uh, I mourn the loss of the original. Um, there is something kind of romantic, uh, for me at least, about that sort of, that city, the, the, I mean, I think of it as a noir city, so that noir city. Um, and it may just be because I, there's something romantic about the design, there's something I like about Spanish mission architecture, there's something I like about, um, you know, I, there's just something I like about it, the deco touches. Um, and it is very different. I mean, in that sense, that's something I've only seen, well, I've seen in California, but I know that was not part of, um, of my upbringing on the East. Those um, city built, you know, a lot of structures built around the same time, but with a completely different aesthetic. So that aesthetic really says something to me about California, about Southern California, about a kind of quality of life. Those old, 
duplexes, which I've lived in uh, many of, um, you know, with all the built-in stuff, you know, the idea that even even in a utilitarian structure, even in a house where if you walk through some of those neighborhoods that were built in the uh, 1920s, you know, there are five or six model structures. So they were developed in a way, but, you know, they're, um, and they were definitely for sort of, you know, they were utilitarian. They were middle-class housing, middle-class rental units. They have these touches. They have these little um, glosses. They're not necessary, even if they're just little, you know, I mean, the place I live in now has a ziggurat design motif. And, you know, when you go down, you come in the front door, you go down into the living room, it's a step down into the living room. The doorway has a kind of, um, you know, reverse staircase ziggurat. You know, they didn't have to do that, but, you know, they, they did. So those little touches, they're little bits of elegance. I think, um, I have a lot of room. I find a lot of romance in that. You write in Sidewalking that you started writing about Los Angeles, I believe, before you even lived here or attempted to. I mean, does anything of that era of your Los, your earliest Los Angeles writing survive in any form in this current book? Um, probably not in the current book. Uh, the earliest writing, I mean, the, like all books, this book was both. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of new stuff, and then there's a lot of... Um, Kind of revisiting, or some things I, or things I pulled out of, of other things. Probably the earliest this book, the earliest stuff in this book probably dates from around '04, maybe '05, which is when I started really writing about walking in Los Angeles. I'd been writing about Los Angeles. I sort of tried to write about it before I moved there, but I was writing from that New Yorker's perspective of how much could possibly be going on there and how hard could it be to wrap your mind around it. So I'll just do that. Um, and then when I moved here in 1991, I started the first piece I actually wrote. Um, the first Los Angeles piece I actually wrote was a piece that I wrote for the Los Angeles Reader where I was working. I was a writer at the time. And it was called 500 Moves You In. And it was about looking for an apartment. I think I published that within the first month. It was a little personal essay um, about the different. And again, uh, I, you know talk about a pattern you know i what i said was you know the problem was too much choice when i'd been looking for an apartment in manhattan it was like if you found one place that was remotely acceptable you jumped yes, um but there was so this is also true of the early 1990s when i was looking for an apartment in the early 1990s there was so much in my price range with what i wanted that i was like i don't want to rent this place because what if the next place is better <laughs> so it was a really sort of dislocating yeah. experience in that way i think that's probably changed in so many it's been a long time since i've looked for an apartment but i um i think that i didn't start i mean i walked the whole time but i didn't really start thinking about what it meant to walk uh, or what it meant to me to walk in Los Angeles until about 10, 11 years ago. And then I started writing about it. And so some of the, there's some stuff or so, certainly some thoughts and some ideas and maybe a couple of passages here and there that kind of come from some of those early writings. That's probably the earliest stuff. And that in some ways, although I didn't really start thinking about this book as a book or thinking that there was a book and for a few years, um, probably until 08 or 09, um, that's where the that's the genesis of the book. Right. The concept of walking in Los Angeles. I think some people will pick up your book purely for novelty reasons. I think because it's off, it's not often written about. But that window is going to close sometime soon. Where writing about walking in Los Angeles is 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 uh, has novelty as a premise. I mean, how long do you think that books like yours have? It's viable right now to do that. But when will it not be? It's, you know, I'm going to write a book about right, walking in Manhattan. No, you're not. I mean, it's, it's, well, it's although, been done. you know, um, there was a really good book by uh, an architect named Michael Sorkin, I think, called uh, oh, yes. 20 Minutes in Manhattan, which yeah. is a book about walking in Manhattan, which came out a couple years ago, which is fantastic. I mean, really Well, smart. in Los Angeles, too, I think, uh, Michael Sorkin. Did he write a book about Los Angeles? Too? articles, I Maybe think. Maybe he has, yeah. I mean, this. I think, I believe that's, it's, it's called 20 Minutes in Manhattan. Um, but in any event, you know, I mean, so it, it, I think partly it depends on the, on, on, you know, can you bring a lens to it that no one else has. Walking can be an element. Walking can be an element. Um, you know, for me, it was a matter of, um, I, I like, uh, I like looking for a kind of counterintuitive lens, both because I think it's, it, it, well, primarily in some ways, because it jars me out of my complacency, right? If I'm going to write about this city from a point of view of a pedestrian, 
whether or not I am a pedestrian in the city, it makes me have to kind of rethink my own relationship or my own engagement or step out of the expected in a certain way. And uh, for I think for a writer, that's always a good thing. Um, so that was one point. I also was very aware, I've always been aware in terms of writing about Los Angeles, not just for myself, that it is a city that we, you know, that is largely defined outside of itself by cliche and stereotype. And so what do we do to jar ourselves out of um, out of that landscape, out of the landscape of cliche? Um, and so for me, one way is to take something that feels really um, unlikely or counter, again, counterintuitive in a certain sense, because I, uh, it, it kind of pushes the conversation into a different direction. It isn't, I mean, it is a book that is, there's a lot of walking in the book. It's not, I mean, it's, it was originally intended to be a book about walking, but it became a book about walking and a bunch of other things. But that, that filter allowed, at least for me, allowed me to kind of keep it. And I think goes back to what we were, I was talking about at the beginning of my experience in Los Angeles. It allowed me to define my own experience and relationship to the city in terms of a very direct engagement with place. If you could hand this book back to 1991 to yourself, just arriving in Los Angeles, I mean, how would, how would he react to what you've written? It's a really interesting question. Um, would anything be shocking? Well, I mean, I think he, I think he would be shocked, um, as I am, um, that I have spent 20 some years writing about Los Angeles which is a place that when I got here I didn't really intend to stay for longer than a couple of years um, so I think that would be the first thing um, I don't know I actually <laughs> I don't often think about my I was 29 then I don't often think of my 29 year old self I have an ongoing dialogue with my 19 year old <laughs> self but it doesn't have much to do with Los Angeles <laughs> Fair enough. somehow not the subject <laughs> so there's it's I just wonder if 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 something would be surprising to you or anyone uh, I mean in the city at that time would it have to do with how the city itself has changed or with the way that the city can now be written about or something I, I feel like it would be it's not the book anybody would expect to have anybody then would expect to be written about Los Angeles in the future exactly do, do you get what I mean or I, I do, I do. although I think you know again I mean I discovered all this stuff later not when I first got there but within the first 10 years but you know there, Mark Norman wrote that book Bike Riding in Los Angeles yes. which came out in 1972 um, there are there's a wealth of stuff that has been written about the city over the last century that is very idiosyncratic and very personal. Richard Rayner's Los Angeles Without a Map or L.A. Without a Map, which is one of my favorite. Um, I mean, it is, he calls it a novel, but I think of it as it's a the main it's character's name. Barely a novel by his admission. Is, yeah, the main character's name is Richard Rayner. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but he doesn't drive, right? I mean, he doesn't he doesn't drive in actual life, but in the, the character doesn't drive. So that sense of a bus rider's Los Angeles or a passenger's Los Angeles or a, a kind of conditional Los Angeles, um, which was very much my experience when I got here. Um, both because for a long time my wife and I shared a single car and also because I had a very close friend who lived here and I would always let him drive because he liked to drive, which I don't, and he also knew the city. He'd been living here for a number of years. He'd been living here for about seven years when I got here, so he knew the city really well. And um, so in many ways, the first year or two that I was here, he was sort of, uh, among other things, he was my tour guide. Um, and so that pa but that sense of being a passenger, that kind of lack of agency, which I remember really well, sitting in the passenger seat of his car on some freeway that I wasn't exactly sure which freeway we were on because I hadn't been paying that much attention, <laughs> and seeing, you know, not really knowing the city well enough and thinking every cluster of, of big buildings was downtown, but none of them actually were, and sort of having this kind of dislocated sense. But I didn't. I didn't have to. You know, he was he was driving, so I didn't have to worry about where we were. You're watching a movie, essentially. Exactly. I was watching a movie, and so there is something. I mean, I remember that quite quite vividly. So I think in that sense. Um, that sense of, of first of dislocation and then of trying to kind of negotiate a relationship with um, with space, that was always part of uh, part of the mix. The city has absolutely changed in many ways um, over that period of time. There's parts of it that haven't changed, um, 
I think, you know, for me, one of the most fundamental changes, which I think is just inevitable any place if you live for long enough, is that I feel a real strong sense of community here, which partly has to do with the city and partly has to do with just the fact that I've lived here a long time and I've gotten to know a lot of people really well and have become part of, have been part of, of a number of overlapping communities. That was something that I think my, um, my 1991 self did not believe was possible so that might be that might be the component that he would be most surprised by and finally we're sitting here in the miracle mile neighborhood which is the neighborhood that gave your book it's a working title and it's the neighborhood you've been here the whole time yes you've always lived in the miracle mile in and around i mean yes basically in you know pico robertson fairfax mid-city miracle mile yeah so do you ever fantasize about living anywhere else in los angeles given all the neighborhoods that are here that we've discussed you know there's many more than we brought up is there any place that you think you know maybe that would be that would be a place to view los angeles from as well for me you know i have and at the moment i don't um and the reason why is because at this point again thinking about sort of how we kind of create the landscape you know i i love Silver Lake I love Echo Park I like downtown I actually would could see myself moving downtown although I don't um, I don't know that I would but I could see myself living down there um, you know this neighborhood for me is a kind of perfect mix of things it's pedestrian friendly uh, it's residential, but there's also it's also commercial. Um, it's identifiably urban in a way that feels comfortable to me. Um, you know, people on the streets, big buildings. Um, it's very neighborhood centric in a sense. I mean, there's a real feeling of neighborhood. The neighborhood that I live in, um, you know, has a neighborhood association, a neighborhood newsletter, and you know, like a street fair and stuff. I mean, little things, but I like that. It, again, other ways of kind of uh, of interacting with place. I feel like I belong in this neighborhood, and. Um, that too is something that I think kind of crept up on me and caught me by surprise. I felt that way for quite some time now, but I think when I first became conscious of it, it was also with a consciousness that I had never expected necessarily to feel that kind of connection to place in this in this city. So I never rule anything out. It's always anything's a possibility. But for right now, um, and especially with sort of uh, the devel- things that are happening here, the kind of the expansion of the museum, the, the you know the public art. Um, there's Plus eight years you're getting a subway station. Eight years I'm getting a subway station. It's like no time. I've been only been waiting for you know a quarter of a century. So what's eight more? Yeah, you you know? can do a few exactly. more. <laughs> You'll be there on day one, I imagine. I will be there. I was I, I rode the red line day one. You know I was at Union Station day one, January 30th, 1993, oh, to ride that to ride that train back and forth a bit. It's going to be a great day whenever they get it open. It here. will be a great day. The only reason, and I do not want them, but the only only benefit to us getting the Olympics is maybe they'll get additional federal transportation funding and be able to open them a little more quickly. But um, Here's hoping. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that's a worthwhile trade-off. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking here in the Miracle Mile with David L. Eulen. He's a book critic the Los Angeles Times, author of Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles most recently, but other books as well, like The Myth of Solid Ground, The Lost Art of Reading, and not a book on uh, The Clash's London Calling. That is not a book he's written. Don't order that one. Do order Sidewalking. Well, read the review on Goodreads. Yeah. <laughs> Read just the Goodreads review and wonder wonder how that came into being and who wrote it. Uh, he's also the editor of anthologies you can't afford to miss if you're into the writing of Los Angeles over the years. Those would be Reading Los Angeles and Another City. David, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. Keep up with me at colinmarshall.org and with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks. Thanks.